0: I didn't want to say it's it's Palm Sunday, and Christians around the world are celebrating the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And in order to get to Palm Sunday, I want us to read about another king who lived a thousand years before in 2 Samuel 24. This chapter in 2 Samuel is the last chapter of the book of Samuel, and uh, it's very fascinating to me that the writer of Samuel decided to include in his narrative this event and make this the last thing that he said about David. It's kind of an odd way to end a story about a king. You have to go into First, and, or first Kings chapters 1 and 2 to see the old age and death of David. But this is how the narrator decided to end the uh, book of Samuel on the life of David. Now, we're going to work our way all the way. We're going to go all the way through chapter 24, making comments and explanations as we go. But I do want to say that the chapter is divided into three sections. Verses 1 to 9 recount David's sin in making the senses. Uh, verses 10 through 17 recount the judgment of God. And then verses 18 to 25 recount the sacrifices. And so let us begin by reading the first nine verses together and see the sin of David. Verse number one, and the anger of the Lord was kindled. I'm sorry, let me start over again. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arorah and from a city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jatser. They came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem, at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Lord, we thank you for the uh, word of God, and I ask that you will give us insight, and I pray that you will... uh, Turn our hearts towards Jesus and draw us to worship Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 starts out by saying, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why God's anger was kindled against David or against Israel, but only that it was. And it also says that it was again. And the best thing that we can figure is that this the word again refers back to chapter number 21, where God was angry with Israel for Saul's killing of the Gibeonites. But the Lord was angry with Israel, not with David. But what did the Lord do? The Bible says that the Lord incited David to make his senses. And here we can see how God's, by comparing Scripture, we can see how God accomplishes his purposes in man. Here it says that God incited David to not make his senses. But if you turn to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you see that the Bible says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, what is going on? How, how do we explain this? Well, Scripture says, that God doesn't tempt any man to sin, right? It says that God doesn't tempt any man to sin, but he does test men. But scripture says that the same tests of God oftentimes are done through the temptation that Satan brings along. And Satan's purposes are not good, while God's purposes are good. We can see this in Job. We see from Job that the suffering that Job suffered was from the hand of Satan, and it was meant for evil, but God meant it for good. And there's one more data point that I did want to point out that we need to see. Verse number four gives us a clear impression that this was David's idea. In David's thinking, this was David's idea. He didn't think, hey, God has incited me to a census. He didn't think to himself, Satan is inciting me to do a sentence. No, it was David's idea. And so in the providence of God and the the interworking of all kinds of different factors, God accomplished his will of punishing the Israelites through the deceitful schemes of Satan and through the sinful desires of of David. And David wanted to take the sentence, senses. What do we know about the senses? Well, we know that in general, they're not bad. God had them make a census in the past a couple different times. And so there's nothing wrong with taking a census in itself. We, we don't know why this was wrong. It could have been pride on David's part. Maybe he wanted to see how big his army was. Or it could have been that David was actually not dependent upon God at this point, and beginning to move towards the direction of depending upon military strength. That is a natural human tendency, right, to rely upon the things that we can see instead of the things that we cannot see. But regardless, uh, the fact of the matter is nobody knows why this census is wrong. But the truth is that God accomplishes his purposes independent through the independent decisions of his creatures. That's what's amazing about the way God works. One of the things that's amazing. So he commands Joab, David commands Joab to go through and number the men of fighting age. Take to senses. Now Job for his part, or Joab for his part, says, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Now, David could not be dissuaded. This was David's idea. David wanted to do it, and he was adamant that it get done. And so they went through the country. They finished the census. Um, The Bible says in verse number eight, in nine months and 20 days later, we suspect that the census was finished about the time that men would naturally go out and start the battle. There was a season for fighting back then, and that would have been the season. The numbers came back, 800,000 valiant men uh, who drew the sword of Israel, and uh, the men of Judah were 500,000. If you look at the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, you're going to see that the numbers are different. Now, what, what uh, is the discrepancy here? How do we account for the discrepancy? We really don't know. We know that the Bible is, is accurate in what it says. The most likely um, explanation, the most logical explanation, is that one author rounded off and the other author gave more exact figures. But we don't know why the numbers are different. The The possibility here is that the, the word that's translated thousands is a Hebrew word, elef. And eleph can be used as a term for a military unit of varying sizes. I've seen figures of anything from 8 to 24. And so when, when people translate from Hebrew to, to English, they take those numbers and they make it into thousands and uh, do the calculations. We don't know why um, the exact figures even We just know that um, a good way of translating it is to say 800,000 and 500,000. But it doesn't matter because we get a good idea of how many men there were. Now, let's let's go on to the next section. That covers a sin, just hitting the highlights, but let's look at the next section on the judgment. Verse number 10, let's read it together. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. That's, that's repentance right there, isn't it? I have sinned, please take my iniquity away. Verse number 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity, and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me in my father's house. Such a fascinating passage. Verse number 10 tells us that immediately David's heart bothered him. It says, but David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. This shows that David had a very sensitive conscience. Of course, we know from his life that he sinned against the Lord very grievous. But... the the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. And so this is a man who, even though he followed sinful passions, he had a sensitive conscience and wanted to be right before the Lord. It's a dangerous place to be when your conscience gets hardened and callous toward your sin, when you can sin and it not bother you, when you can sin and your conscience not um, uh, begin to work in your life. So his response was to ask God, to do what only God can do. And what is that? What is it that only God can do? Well, let's keep reading. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We know from reading Scripture that only God can take away sin and iniquity. There is no sacrifice that David could make to atone for his sin, there is no sacrifice that he can perform to take away his sin. It's something that only God can do. And it's only God's choice to take away sin. It's nobody else's choice. God is not bound to take away sin because of our actions. What I mean is um, God is not bound to take away sin simply because we offer sacrifices to God like David did or something like that. God does things of his own free will. We'll get more into that in just a moment. The next morning, Gad, the seer, comes to David with a message from the Lord. David is given the choice of one of three punishments. Three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. Wouldn't it be great to be able to choose your punishment that would be awesome, wouldn't it? When I was a child, that that would have been that would have been really really nice to be able to choose my own punishment. Or those times when um, I've gotten stopped by the police and gotten a speeding ticket. That's been a long time ago, but I have gotten a speeding ticket in the last oh, a couple decades. Let's say that and it was very. <laughs> it happened to be a very expensive one. It was at that point where I wish I could have chosen my punishment, but. Uh, But God gives him a chance to choose what happens. I want you to notice something interesting in the way it's worded. Look at the end of verse number 12. At the end of verse number 12, God says, choose one of them that I may do it to you. Now the you in the original language is singular, but the punishment afflicts the whole nation. Now, this is fascinating to me because what it shows is that King David identified very closely with his subjects. To have something done to his kingdom is the same as doing it to him, the king. He truly was a man after God's own heart. Because if you remember in the New Testament, in Acts chapter number nine, Saul was persecuting the church and David, or uh, Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, he wasn't persecuting Jesus personally. He was persecuting the church. But Jesus so identifies with his church. Jesus so identifies with you, dear believer. I want you to remember this, that when something is done against you by the hand of an enemy, it's the same as doing it to Jesus Christ because he identifies so closely to you. Isn't that a blessing? We serve a king who loves his subjects and identifies closely with us. Now we see a trend in these three choices, don't we? The trend is that the shorter the duration, the more intense the affliction. And David knew this. And and he knew his God. And so he replied, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Now, why did he want to fall into the hand of the Lord? He fell. In, he wanted to fall into the hand of the Lord because he goes on to say, his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. You know what David knew about his God? David knew the same thing. Uh, he says what he knew about God in Psalm 145. He says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he made. In another place, in Psalm 103, he he knew that God redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is a man who knew his God and knew that even in the midst of punishment, there is steadfast love and mercy. And so when we are chastened by the Lord, we must remember that our chastening is mixed with mercy an abundance of mercy, and it's done through an infinite, steadfast love of God. Now the next morning, the pestilence began, and almost 70,000 people died. Verse number 16 lets us know that although the pestilence was physical, Behind it was a spiritual cause. God pulled back the curtain, as it were, in on the spiritual realm and revealed the spiritual cause of the pestilence. What was it? It was an angel who, according to 1 Chronicles 21, had an unsheathed sword in his hand. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, But we we wrestle against spiritual beings, spiritual wickedness in high places. There's a spiritual battle going on. And uh, many times, behind physical realities that we see is an even more clear spiritual reality that we do not see. And the order of events is important here. First, the Bible says that the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem. The next thing the narrative says is that God relented and told the angel to stay his hand. This angel had been destroying people all through the land by pestilence, and it was preparing to destroy, the Bible says, destroy Jerusalem. But God relented. Now, why did God relent? Why did God relent? Was it because David interceded? No, because David hadn't interceded yet. Was it that God um, decided that everybody had repented? No. God did it for his own glory. The word relented means grieved. David did well to place his trust in God's mercy because even with all the destruction, God is grieved at the destruction of the wicked. The Lord's words to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18 have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn to his way and live. In the midst of that um, punishment, that pestilence that was coming along, God really desired that these people turn from their sin and turn to him. That's what Ezekiel 18 and verse number 23 says later on in verse number 32. God said, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And here, so one verse he says, I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. I I have pleasure in that somebody would turn from their sin and live. And so what does he do? In verse number 32, he restates the first part, and then he, he pleads with people, will you turn and will you live? And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in people's lives even today. The Holy Spirit is calling on people to turn and to live. Now, from his vantage point in the city, David could see that the divine visitation had reached the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. He was able to see the angel standing up there. So he went out to meet the angel. Now, God had already relented, remember? And he had already told the um, angel not to proceed with the destruction of Jerusalem. But apparently, David didn't hear that That. Um, conversation. And so he intercedes, verse number 17, a very key verse that I want us to come back to in just a minute. Behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. I just have one question for you before you go on. Did God answer that question? Did God answer that request? Let's go on to verse number 18 and read the rest of the chapter. And Gad came that way that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord, and on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked up down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges. And the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar. To the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. David is commanded to build an altar to make sacrifices to God on the threshing floor of Aruna. The conversation between these two men must be understood through custom. It was common when a person wanted it well, let me back up. Apparently it was common that when somebody wanted to buy a property, the other person would say, I'll just give it to you. We find that in in Genesis when uh, Abraham wanted to buy the cave of Machpelah and he went and offered to buy it. And he said, no, I'll just give it to you. And, and Abraham said, no, I can't do that. And eventually came back and said, well, uh, a certain number of shekels of silver, what is that between us? And that was the price that he was he was offering. And, and here... The negotiation was very similar. The man said, "Aruna said, oh, I'll just give it to you. And David said, I can't do that. And once he goes through the niceties, the deal was made to buy it for 50 shekels of silver. Now, this piece of property already had a long biblical history. If you remember, a thousand years prior to this, on this piece of land, Abraham Laid Isaac upon an altar in obedience to the Lord. 1 Chronicles 22, 1 tells us that this location is where Solomon, David's son, built the temple to the Lord. He offered, now David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And the Bible says that the Lord um, stayed the plague. The burnt offering, you must realize, is represents propitiation of sin. And the peace offering represents fellowship with God. First Chronicles says that God accepted the sacrifice, and fire came down from heaven and consumed it. And the the response of the Lord accepting the sacrifice in stopping the plague really did not have to do with with David's sacrifice. He stopped it after David's sacrifice to him, but he did it on his own will, and for his own glory. He had already relented. He already had stayed the hand of the angel, and all of this coincided. David had to do the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, but the Lord had already decided to stop the plague, and he stopped it after David offered the offerings. Now, let us begin to wrap everything up, and I want you to go back with me to verse number 17. Go back with me to verse number 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? And then here's a request. Are you ready? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Notice the term of endearment that David uses to speak of his subjects. What does he call them? He calls them sheep. Now, this is common in the ancient Near East. We have abundant records of different pharaohs calling their subjects sheep. Many Babylonian kings called their subjects sheep, including Hammurabi. Remember Hammurabi's law code? You learn that in history class. Uh, he called his subjects sheep. Kings of Persia called their subjects sheep. And here David calls this subject sheep, and these men, these these emperors and these kings, would call themselves shepherds. They refer, refer to themselves as shepherds, I'm shepherding my people. And he requested of God that David that God's hand be against the house of David and not against the people. Now here's the question: Did God answer that prayer? And the answer is, Yes, he did. I want you to see this by turning to Mark chapter number 11. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to circle back around to Palm Sunday. Mark chapter number 11. A thousand years later from this event came one riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. In verse number 9, says that people were shouting the following, Hosanna, blessed be! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna to the highest. And so here we have the man who was of the house and lineage of David, who was the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse number 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And when, did he, and when he laid his life down, he answered David's request in verse number 10 to take away the sin. Jump, First John chapter 4 in verse number 10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so Jesus Christ came and was a propitiation for our sins. He rode into Jerusalem. He went into the, his father's house. He cast out the money changers, the Bible says. And six days later, he died on the cross near that temple. But he was a propitiation. And that's a big word. We don't use that word very often, do we? The, the word... Um, is sometimes used interchangeably with the word expiation. But they're two different words. The word expiation means to cover sin, it just means to cover it up. The word propitiation did, in Christ's sacrifice, did more than cover our sin. His sacrifice removed our sin. And that's what propitiation means. Propitiation means to remove sin. And so God answered. David's prayer of removing the iniquity and placing it on his father's house, and he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. When he sacrificed, when he was sacrificed on the cross, not only did he remove David's sin and the sins of the people of Israel, he removed our sin as well. But he also answered David's prayer by bringing his hand against the house of David, because the Son of God, from the house of David, rode triumphantly into Jerusalem that Sunday. Then after an unjust trial, was crucified not far from the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite and took on the sin of the redeemed. In that moment, he covered David's sin. He removed David's sin. He covered the sin of the redeemed Israelites and removed it from them. And he removed and covered our sin, my sin, and your sin. The burnt offering that David offered symbolized the propitiation of sin, and that was only a shadow. Calvary was the reality. The peace offerings that yes, symbolized fellowship and peace with God were the shadow, but Christ's sacrifice resulted in the reality. Paul said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God answered his prayer. David had peace. Israel had peace. And we now have peace with God. If you'll you'll look back at Mark chapter 11, you, you want to think of the magnificent background and the events that lead up to the glorious entry of our King of Kings, Lord of Lord, the Good Shepherd, the Son of God from the house of David, Let's read this one more time, taking into account all of this historical background as we read about the triumphal entry today. Verse number one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away, they found the colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it and sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. God did answer David's prayer that day, but not in David's timing. It was in his timing. His answer to David's prayer was full of mercy and steadfast love because his hand was against the only one who could conquer death. His hand was against Jesus Christ. His hand was against the one in the house of David who could bear the sins and iniquities of the whole world. His answer to David's prayer was actually much greater than David had requested. It removed the iniquity of not just the lost sheep of Israel, but other sheep that are not of that fold, that are around the world, all through the world, that are not of the fold of Israel. God forgives sin for his own glory. You are saved because of the glory of God. And so now with the Jews of that day, we can shout, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, because he does far more abundantly than we are able to even ask or think. He did it for David and He will do it to um, uh, do it for us. Praise be our glorious God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ on this Palm Sunday. Let us pray, Lord. We thank you for uh, the, the the Bible narratives, the stories that you have weaved truth together in such a way that it makes a unified whole, and in the end it brings about your honor and your glory. We thank you that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he challenged the religious leaders, he um, healed the sick, he um, made the lame to walk, he raised the dead, and ultimately, he gave his life as a sacrifice, not only for the sins of David, for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of all of his sheep who would ever come to him in the future. We thank you for Jesus. I pray that this Palm Sunday and this coming week um, of um, the, the, all the events of Jesus that we will ponder every day the magnificence of our salvation. In his name we pray, amen.